This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a preview of what's blooming in Bisbee this Labor Day weekend. A quick reflection on the mystique of rock and roll legend Charlie Watts. And the premiere of the audio drama A White Heron, performed by the Rogue Theater. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. After suspending most activities in 2020 because of the pandemic, many organizations are trying to resume events. In southeast Arizona, the Bisbee Bloomers are giving the public a chance to visit eight private gardens on Saturday, September 4th. That's during Labor Day weekend. The Bisbee Garden Tour is an annual event to raise funds for the nonprofit group, which gives back to the city and its residents. Tony Paniagua gets a preview of what's in store from one of the group's members. I'm Kaylin Cummins. Uh, I am the co-chair of the Bisbee Bloomers. It's a garden club here in Bisbee, Arizona. Kaylin, please tell us about the history of the Bisbee Bloomers. Well, uh, they started, I wasn't a part of it, in 2001. And uh, the whole idea was to beautify Bisbee. So there were lots of public projects. Uh, it's a 501c3, a nonprofit. Through the years, we have adopted parks. Uh, we have helped with city projects. We have bought trash cans and ashtrays and benches. We've done cleanups. It's a service group almost more than a gardening group. So for 19 years of this, we have put on a garden tour, and that is our main fundraiser. Some people who live in Tucson and other parts of the state think Bisbee looks great and it probably would not be in need of an organization like the Bisbee Bloomers. So why don't you give us a take from a perspective of somebody who lives there? Well, Bisbee is a poor community. Uh, We lost uh, the miners in 1975, and so the city has trouble keeping up with all the flora, especially after a monsoon like we've had. So um, it behooves the residents to pitch in. We are a city of volunteers. We have something like 68 nonprofits in town, so we all do our share. Uh, It is a beautiful city, but um, people like to get a peek into gardens for the garden tour. We have 14 parks for a town of 5,500 people, and so uh, they need all the help they can get. Kaylin, how excited are you about reviving this tour? Because obviously we, we all know that in 2020, many businesses and tours and museums and other attractions were forced to shut down because of the pandemic. You're right. We uh, missed the garden tour last year. We didn't feel it was safe. And we do feel this is safe because people will be outdoors. And uh, so this gives us a chance to recruit some of our losses and uh, just celebrate um, our beautiful little city, our docents. um, We haven't seen them for a year, so it'll be fun to see them. And uh, we're looking forward to it. 
One of the exciting things about this tour, I would imagine, is the fact that you get to see people's properties, a so-called behind-the-scenes situation in the town of Bisbee, away from the main attractions that everybody's familiar with. Exactly, exactly. You get to snoop around people's gardens, and they are eclectic, to say the least. Some of them are tiny, some of them are good-sized, uh, they're not like your desert landscaping in Tucson or Sierra Vista. So there's always something to see. Not, it's not going to be everyone's taste, uh, each garden, but everyone will find something of interest. It's a chance for exercise, outdoors, and seeing some beautiful places as well. Yeah, it's fairly walkable. It it could be a bit of a hike for some people, um, but... The map will tell you how to get there, and, um, you know, you can drive a bit and walk a bit. So we're looking forward to a good group. Uh, There haven't been many events in Bisbee, so we're thinking people will want to come. Okay, Caitlin Cummins, she is a member of the Bisbee Bloomers. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Tony. If you'd like more information about the Bisbee Garden Tour happening the first Saturday of September during Labor Day weekend, you can find the Bisbee Bloomers on Facebook or follow the link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. When I began to play drums around the age of 16, I started keeping my ears open for classic rock that I thought would be good to learn from. Because my mom had bought me a bright blue, extra-loud cowbell to go with my first set of drums, I was attracted to Honky Tonk Woman by the Rolling Stones. Being young and naive about how music was recorded, I didn't know anything about multi-tracking then. I just assumed that drummer Charlie Watts was playing both the drums and the cowbell pattern at the same time. He was not, but I was determined to learn how to do it. And the beat that eventually developed, well, it sounded good enough to fake it. It remains my best musical party trick, but I'm not alone in that. You can go to YouTube and see other drummers doing their versions. Charlie Watts was an enigma to most people. He always kept his cards very close to his fashionable vest. He stood out in the Stones as being different, but outside of playing in one of his beloved big bands, it's hard to imagine Watts really blending in with any rock group this side of Devo. Even so, in reacting to his death on Tuesday at age 80, fans around the world are finding endless ways to praise Charlie Watts for what he meant to them. I haven't heard a single soul suggest that the Stones would have been better off with anyone else behind them during their 58 years together. In photographs, you don't often see Watts offering more than a polite smile or a smirk, except when he was with his wife or daughter or near his beloved Arabian horses. He guarded his privacy, and he never gave a damn what anyone else thought. He lived life doing exactly what he wanted on his terms, and he inspired many others to try doing the same. Charlie Watts did not share the same appetites as his bandmates Mick and Keith, and I don't doubt for a second that he died a satisfied man.
How much is it worth to keep a secret? Join us now for a visit to the Theater of Imagination as the Rogue Theater presents this edition of Rogue Radio. A White Heron by Sarah Orne Jewett The woods were already filled with shadows one June evening, just before eight o'clock, though a bright sunset still glimmered faintly among the trunks of the trees. A little girl was driving home her cow, a plodding, dilatory creature, but a valued companion for all that. They were going away from whatever light there was and striking deep into the woods. There was hardly a night when the old cow could be found waiting at the pasture gate, On the contrary, it was her greatest pleasure to hide herself away among the huckleberry bushes. So Sylvia had to hunt for her until she found her and call, with never an answering moo, until her childish patience was quite spent. (sighs) Sylvia wondered what her grandmother would say because they were so late. Mrs. Tilly had chased the cow too many summer evenings herself to blame anyone else for lingering. Mm Mm-hmm and was only thankful as she waited that she had Sylvia nowadays to give such valuable assistance. I suppose she loafs about sometimes, but there never was such a child for straying about out of doors since the world was made. Everybody said it was a good change for a little maid who had tried to grow for eight years in a crowded manufacturing town. But as for Sylvia herself... It seemed as if she never had been alive at all before she came to live at the farm. Afraid of folks, they said. I guess you won't be troubled, no great with them up to the old place. The very first time she saw the lonely house, Sylvia whispered, This is a beautiful place. I never want to go home. Tonight, Sylvia felt sleepy as she walked along. The air was soft and sweet. She was not often in the woods so late as this, and it made her feel as if she were part of the gray shadows and the moving leaves. She was just thinking how long it seemed since she first came to the farm a year ago, and wondering if everything went on in the noisy town just the same as when she was there. Suddenly, the little woods girl was horror-stricken to hear a clear whistle not very far away. Hello? Little girl, how far is it to the road? A good ways. She did not dare to look boldly at the tall young man who carried a gun over his shoulder. I've been hunting for some birds and I have lost my way and need a friend very much. Don't be afraid. Speak up and tell me what your name is and whether you think I can spend the night at your house and go out gunning early in the morning. Sylvia was more alarmed than before. Would not her grandmother consider her much to blame? But who could have foreseen such an accident as this? It did not seem to be her fault, and she hung her head as if the stem of it were broken. Sylvie. What was that? Sylvie. Mrs. Tilly was standing in the doorway when the trio came into view. Yes, you'd better speak up for yourself, you old trial. Where'd she tuck herself away this time, Sylvie? But Sylvia kept an odd silence, 
She knew by instinct that her grandmother did not comprehend the gravity of the situation. Good evening, ma'am. I have been hunting for some birds, and I have lost my way. I asked Sylvie here if I could spend the night at your house and go out gunning early in the morning. You can put me anywhere you like. I must be off early in the morning, before day, but I am very hungry indeed. You can give me some milk at any rate, that's plain. Dear sakes, yes. You might fare better if you went out to the main road a mile or so, but you're welcome to what we've got. I'll milk right off, and you make yourself at home. You can sleep on husks or feathers. I raise them all myself. There's good pasture and for geese just below here towards the marsh. Now, step round and set a plate for the gentleman, Sylvie. It was a surprise to find so clean and comfortable a little dwelling in this New England wilderness. The young man listened eagerly to the old woman's quaint talk. He watched Sylvia's pale face and shining gray eyes with ever-growing enthusiasm and insisted that... This is the best supper I've eaten for a month. And afterward, the new-made friends sat down in the doorway together while the moon came up. Soon it will be berry time, and Sylvie's a great help at picking. The cow is a good milker, though a plaguey thing to keep track of. I've buried four children, so Sylvie here's mother and my son, who might be dead in California, are the only child I have left. Dan, my boy, was a great hand to go gunning. I never wanted for partridges or gray squirrels while he was to home. He's been a great wanderer, I expect, and he's no hand to write letters. There, I don't blame him. I'd have seen the world myself if it had been so I could. Sylvie takes after him. There ain't a foot of ground she don't know her way over, and the wild creatures count her as one of themselves. Squirrels she'll tame to come and feed right out of her hands, and all sorts of birds— Last winter she got the jaybirds to gather in here, and I believe she'd have scanted herself of her own meals to have plenty to throw out amongst them if I hadn't kept watch. Anything but crows, I tell her, I'm willing to support. Though Dan, he had a tamed one of them that did seem to have reason same as folks. It was round here a good spell after he went away. Dan and his father didn't hitch, but he never held up his head again after Dan had gone off. The guest did not notice this hint of family sorrows in his eager interest in something else. So Sylvie knows all about birds, does she? I'm making a collection of birds myself. I've been at it ever since I was a boy. There are two or three very rare ones I've been hunting for these five years. I mean to get them on my own ground if they can be found. Do you cage them up? Oh, no. They're stuffed and preserved, dozens and dozens of them, and I have shot or snared every one myself. I caught a glimpse of a white heron a few miles from here on Saturday, and I have followed it in this direction. They have never been found in this district at all. The little white heron it is. And he turned again to look at Sylvia, with the hope of discovering that the rare bird was one of her acquaintances. But Sylvia was watching a hop-toad in the narrow footpath. You would know the heron if you saw it. A queer, tall, white bird with soft feathers and long, thin legs. And it would have a nest, perhaps in the top of a high tree, made of sticks, something like a hawk's nest. Sylvia's heart gave a wild beat. She knew that strange white bird, and had once stolen softly near where it stood in some bright green swamp grass, away over at the other side of the woods. I can't think of anything I should like so much as to find that heron's nest. 
I would give ten dollars to anybody who could show it to me, and I mean to spend my whole vacation hunting for it if need be. Perhaps it was only migrating or had been chased out of its own region by some bird of prey. Mrs. Tilly gave amazed attention to all this, but Sylvia still watched the toad. No amount of thought could decide how many wished-for treasures the ten dollars would buy. The next day, the young sportsman hovered about the woods, and Sylvia kept him company. He told her many things about the birds and what they knew and where they lived and what they did with themselves, and he gave her a jackknife, which she thought as great a treasure as if she were a desert islander. Sylvia would have liked him vastly better without his gun. She could not understand why he killed the very birds he seemed to like so much. But as the day waned, Sylvia still watched the young man with loving admiration. She had never seen anybody so charming and delightful. The woman's heart, asleep in the child, was vaguely thrilled by a dream of love. Half a mile from home, at the farther edge of the woods, a great pine tree stood, the last of its generation. The woodchoppers who had felled its mates were dead and gone long ago, and a whole forest of sturdy trees, pines and oaks and maples, had grown again. But the stately head of this old pine towered above them all and made a landmark for sea and shore miles and miles away. Sylvia knew it well. I think whoever climbs to the top of it can see the ocean. The little girl had laid her hand on the great rough trunk and looked up wistfully at those dark boughs. Now she thought of the tree with a new excitement. If one climbed it at break of day, why could not one see all the world and easily discover the white heron and find the hidden nest? All night the door of the little house stood open, and the whippoorwills came and sang upon the very step. The young sportsman and his old hostess were sound asleep, but Sylvia's great design kept her broad awake and watching. She forgot to think of sleep. At last, when the whippoorwills ceased, she stole out of the house and followed the pasture path through the woods. There was the huge tree asleep yet in the paling moonlight, and Sylvia began with utmost bravery to mount to the top of it, reaching up, up, almost to the sky itself. The way was harder than she thought. The sharp, dry twigs caught and held her and scratched her like angry talons. The pitch made her little thin fingers clumsy and stiff as she went round and round the tree's great stem, higher and higher upward. It was like a great main mast to the voyaging earth. It must truly have been amazed that morning as it felt this determined spark of human spirit wending its way from higher branch to branch. More than all the hawks and bats and moths and even the sweet-voiced thrushes was the brave beating heart of the solitary gray-eyed child. Sylvia's face was like a pale star. When the last thorny bough was passed, 
and she stood trembling and tired, but triumphant, high in the treetop. Yes, there was the sea with the dawning sun making a golden dazzle over it, and toward that glorious east flew two hawks with slow-moving pinions. How low they looked in the air from that height, when one had only seen them before, far up and dark against the blue sky. Westward, the woodlands and farms reached miles and miles into the distance. Here and there were church steeples and white villages. Truly, it was a vast and awesome world. The birds sang louder and louder. At last, the sun came up bewilderingly bright. Where is the white heron's nest in the sea of green branches? Now look down again, Sylvia where the green marshes set among the shining birches and dark hemlocks. There, where you saw the white heron once, you will see him again. Look, look! A white spot of him, like a single floating feather! A sweep of wing and outstretched slender neck and crested head. And wait, wait, do not move a foot or a finger, little girl, for the heron has perched on a pine bough not far beyond yours and cries back to his mate on the nest and plumes his feathers for the new day. Sylvia knows his secret now. The wild, light, slender bird that floats and wavers and goes back like an arrow presently to his home in the green world beneath. Then Sylvia, well satisfied, makes her perilous way down again, wondering over and over again what the stranger would say to her. And what will he think when I tell him how to find his way straight to the heron's nest? The stranger waked from a dream, and remembering his day's pleasure, hurried to dress himself that it might sooner begin. I am sure from the way the shy little girl looked once or twice yesterday that she had at least seen the white heron, and now she must really be made to tell. Here she comes now, paler than ever. And her worn old frock was torn and tattered and smeared with pine pitch. The grandmother and the sportsman stand in the door together and question her. And the splendid moment has come to speak of the dead hemlock tree by the green marsh. But Sylvia does not speak at all. Though the old grandmother fretfully rebukes her and the young man's kind, appealing eyes are looking straight in her own. He can make us rich with money. He has promised it and we are poor now. He is so well worth making happy. I wait to hear the story she can tell. No, she must keep silence. What is it that suddenly forbids her and makes her dumb? Has she been nine years growing, and now, when the great world for the first time puts out a hand to her, must she thrust it aside for a bird's sake? The murmur of the pine's green branches is in her ears. She remembers... How the white heron came flying through the golden air, and how we watched the sea and the morning together. And Sylvia cannot speak. I cannot tell the heron's secret and give its life away. Dear loyalty, that suffered a sharp pang as the guest went away disappointed later in the day, that could have served and followed him and loved him as a dog loves. 
Many a night Sylvia heard the echo of his whistle haunting the pasture path as she came home with the loitering cow. She forgot even her sorrow at the sharp report of his gun and the sight of thrushes and sparrows dropping silent to the ground, their songs hushed and their pretty feathers stained and wet with blood. Were the birds better friends than their hunter might have been? Who can tell? Whatever treasures were lost to her, woodlands in summertime, remember. Bring your gifts and graces and tell your secrets to this lonely country child. A White Heron was adapted by Cynthia Meyer from the 1886 short story written by Sarah Orne Jewett. It starred Bryn Booth as Sylvia, Carly Elizabeth Preston as Mrs. Tilly, Hunter Nat as The Stranger, and Cynthia Meyer as The Narrator. It was directed by Joseph McGrath. The music was adapted and performed by Russell Ronnebaum. This Rogue Theater presentation was supported in part by the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona and Marianne Leedy. Join us here on Arizona Spotlight for more radio drama coming soon. And thank you for listening. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to Kathy's Vacuum and Sewing for their support of Arizona Public Media.